is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. Welcome back to ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast. Today, I am here, Georg Bling, with two experts in analyzing open source community repositories, Chris and Nir from Arnica. Hi. Hi. Hey. So would you like to introduce yourself, maybe where you've come from, what your entry point to open source has been and what brought you to, to Arnica and what you're doing now? Hi, I'm Chris Abraham. I've actually had a long history with open source and software programming even though my background probably doesn't lend itself very easily to it. But I've had a long career in what's called advanced analytics, and that's really bringing analytics to bear on problems that businesses and other communities face. And that's a long winding road through multiple verticals, through multiple corporate companies, to Arnica, which is a startup. But the gist of it is really how to bring analytics to solve problems that people, if freed from, would sort of like 10x times their ability to be effective and uh, good at what they do. That's really how I came to Arnica. The problems that I work at Arnica are simply of the same type. And it's about how to make software something that is integral to people's lives. And that's what I do. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, bit about myself and how I got into this space. So I'm a security guy. Security and open source kind of comes together today. But when I got into open source in general, I mean, I, back in 2015, I started questions about what actually are you are embedding into your own software. And back then, there was no trend around software supply chain and everything that we see today. But that got my interest. Um, so that was where I started actually looking into what is the impact of open source. But beyond that, I had a lot of personal use to open source libraries and open source projects because I'm hacker. And I like to figure out how to like make my smartphone smarter and find ways, although I'm a security guy, find ways to bypass security controls to make my life easier. So, so that's pretty much the history of how um, I've been using open source. And most recently, when we started to talk about analyzing data and building models, especially around developers and libraries and behaviors around that, the biggest challenge the data scientists have today is access to data. And when I spoke to Chris initially, I said, hey, Chris, you have unlimited data. You can go to any open source project and test your models. And by the smile, I think it was compelling enough <laughs> to take that leap. Yeah, on the home automation we are currently building a house and my husband is all about putting the sensors into the house and building his own security system and automation things with Home Assistant as the platform. 
What do you use? Well, so first of all, I have smart things. That's kind of the, the main control. I don't use the open source. I do have alarm.com, unfortunately, but we'll replace that soon. And of course, I have all the smart toggles and the garage. And I mean, my TV, not from the TV, but, you know, external controls, ACs. I mean, pretty much everything that I can automate, I'm there. My next thing is actually checking if I can turn on the dryer automatically, but we'll see. Does it also move the laundry from the washer to the dryer? That's a billion dollar project. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Funny story about that. Yes. So some of those IoT devices, they have very strict security controls. Like let's say an alarm, right? You can arm your device with Alexa, but you cannot disarm the device with Alexa. And sometimes it may ask you a password or that was like a legacy functionality. But, you know, all I want is that when I say good morning, everything will be automatically unlocked. So that's just an example of how I'm thinking about it. Need to find ways to say the alarm to disarm without having those kind of lifting those security controls up somehow. Yeah. Oh, so much we can do with that. The reason I reached out to you and you already alluded to that with data science background from Chris and Nir from understanding open source and getting the data is you two published blog post or wrote a blog post or report on how do the top open source projects protect their code. And so I wanted to bring that to this podcast and to the chaos community because I thought, hey, you're analyzing open source projects. That's what we are interested in. And I'd love to hear from you what the background is of why you did this study and how you went about doing it. So yeah, I think the genesis of it essentially is that we use open source projects essentially as a data source because it is the largest repository that you can have access to with lots of code, lots of developers, how they behave and things like that. So that's really the domain that we're playing in. And then here comes essentially with an idea, hey, let's do an analysis of what the people in the OSS community are doing. And I said, great. I mean, we can just take a look at what we should look at from the playground point of view. And he said, okay, well, I'll get the data. So I'll let it over to Nier to see how he did the data part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe worth emphasizing. I mean, there are some questions that we ask and have assumptions around them. It's like, hey, is code owners good or bad? Or should I use branch protection policies and pretty much everything? Or how should I invite contributors? And then there's a lot of questions that are related to open source communities that it's not enough to look at one or two projects to say, you know, I see how Kubernetes works and this is phenomenal. They're big enough and they're managing everything at a scale. We do want to see like what is a common ground and not only like what is the tip of the spear. And for the side note for that, this is also how we build features. We look at the data and this particular thing, we wanted to see if code owners is good or branch protection is good or how commonly it's used. And what we decided to do is went to our best friend, Google, and started Googling for the top starred projects. So just want to ask for clarification when you say this is how you select features. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I'll give an example. What we do, for example, with permissions, what we do within Arnica is that we identify excessive permissions of developers. And the excessive permission is not necessarily what you see on GitHub. An excessive permission can be, for example, you are in code owner's file and you did not review PRs in the last 90 days. Okay? 
So when we thought about identifying those risks, it came to our mind. It's like, hey, it's okay if we find it, but how can we actually fix it? And we found the, let's say, very elegant way to fix permissions by applying branch protection policies. And therefore, we wanted to see, hey, how common it is across companies or across open source to even use branch protection policies and which branch protection policies are applied. So to answer those questions, of course, we spoke with a lot of people, but it, it wasn't enough. Conversations don't scale. Data is with open source. And so if I understood this correctly, you were thinking from Anika's perspective, okay, how can we give good recommendations around security and alleviating the problem with access permissions. And we wanted to see is going after brand protection policies, is that the right approach that can actually work because people are using them? And so you're looking at the data, do people have policies around it? And then can we infer from it if there is a security issue or not? Yes. And not only that, we also wanted to infer whether we can also apply those policies at a mitigation step from our solution. Because at the end of the day, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel with making any hacks with that difficult mathematical problem. And this is why I said we found a very elegant solution based on what we saw with the data. Yeah. So let's dive in. How did you go about collecting data and looking at what the open source is doing? Yeah. So the way that we started to look at that is that we, of course, went to Google and found top 500 star projects. And initially we started with, let's do 50, let's do 100, let's do 150. And at the point where we saw that it doesn't change much, that's pretty much where we stopped. So we saw the 250, top 250 star was a good enough data set for us to play around with it. Reached saturation in the data, basically. Exactly. And that's a simple script that I wrote, you know, GitHub's APIs are available. So essentially went to all of those repos, you know, cloned the repos to get to collect some data. But as for our other research purposes, got the branch protection policies, got code owners, got the paths. How do you assign users? Do you assign individuals? Do you assign teams? Do you assign emails? I mean, we went to that depth of the research. For example, do you have code owners, but do they enforce? Aren't they enforced? And obviously some of those the data points were incomplete because like if you try to get the contributors list from Kubernetes, for example, well, you don't get it via API. It's too big. <laughs> so we had to make a couple of assumptions on the way as well. But that was just maybe, Chris, we had only one or two of those, right? Maybe this, the Linux had another issue. Yes, yeah. Linux, but, initially. but that's like the biggest one because we also wanted to understand like, what is the cloud of contributors as opposed to what is the amount of code owners you have or are pull requests are being reviewed? Are you looking into pull requests in a specific branch or you have pull request reviews to different branches? For example, with Angular, you have different versions. So people merge into the specific version and we wanted to see those controls. For example, with code owners, you can have a different code owners file per branch. Is there a difference between the branches? So we went that deep to figure out what are those common controls. And, and essentially it was like a back and forth between Chris and myself because I did an iteration and then Chris said, no, it's not enough data. And I had to bring more data and it was all back and forth to figure out how Chris can slice and dice the data in a good enough way that will not be biased towards more popular projects. Exactly. So, I mean, getting the data is an iterative process. So it's obviously for any data science project or analysis, that's really what you will find. 
that the first cut is never enough. And the important thing to keep in mind is when you're doing exploration of this kind of data, you find the gaps, but then you're keeping in mind also what kind of metrics you can stand up because anytime you do a greenfield kind of analysis like this, you're not entirely sure how to even analyze the kind of data that you're coming across. So that kind of iterative process back and forth is really what helps in standing up the data to begin with. You have somewhat of a vague idea of what metrics could actually help you. And then you have to go back and get more data or get more appropriate data in certain areas in order to be able to fill out the metrics that you think might be useful, let alone using those metrics to draw insights. So that's the kind of process we had to go through for this. You know, I remember one of the questions that I asked you that got me back to do some more iterations is asked you, so does Codonus contribute to the quality of the code? Put aside security. I really wanted to understand that. And that kind of led to an entire big range of tests that Chris had to write. I don't know if you recall from the blog post. It's like you looked at the time between the iterations that people respond. Yeah, the time between the interactions within pull requests. So like if you open a pull request and someone comments on a pull request and then someone else comments, so you have two iterations. And then you start measuring that. So does that contribute to productivity or not? And that's kind of was part of that research because of course we care about security, but the moment that security impacts that development velocity, it comes us. Yeah, so find it interesting that you're also looking at the temporal aspect of code reviews and iterations and the back and forth that happens. And we have in, in the chaos community, we are defining metrics and that's one of the metrics that we have. Now, you said you wanted to know, do code owners contribute to the quality? How did you assess quality in this case? Right. So we have a general idea of what that interaction and contribution to temporality is within every pull request that you have. So you're aggregating it across all of the various top 250 repos as well, right? But it's not sufficient to just say, hey, there was an interaction. Was it a meaningful interaction? Meaning that does it pertain to somebody who is controlling that particular branch or in charge of it? And therefore we are We use a kind of heuristic there, meaning that if people who are in the code owners actually interact, then we assign a higher weightage to that versus if they were just generally members or other contributors, for example. So using that kind of a heuristic, you're essentially weighting the interaction and the time that is taken and then coming up with an overall aggregated score. So that's the way we approach it. I mean, this took several iterations itself. So it's not that it was decided as the metric. So we already stratified the data according to the number of pull requests that a project already has. And then we are keeping track of the number of contributors as well as the temporality of the interactions and weighting the kind of interactions that people have within the pull request. And that's how you put this entire picture together. So when you look at the data that we're presenting as inference, you're looking at it through multiple dimensions this way, and then trying to draw some inferences from that. Maybe one more comment on that, on the quality. We didn't include that in the post, but 
you remember, Chris, when we looked at the content of the comments on the PRs, we could tell by looking at the project of how many of the pull requests are being rubber stamped. And that could be either the time of interaction that took seconds on the measurement was time divided by lines of code that were added. And not only that, we looked at, at content and we saw a lot LGTMs, a lot. And LGTM that comes like two seconds after PR is opened and it has, let's say, 50 lines of code, it just doesn't make sense. And that is a rubber stamping. So that obviously decreases the quality of the reviews of that project. That's an interesting approach. So you're looking at the interaction to have a heuristic for how good of a quality was the review and right. the PR. Yeah. And you did not open up the code changes and did an analysis of the actual code itself. It was really based on the interactions. Right. So the volume of the code changes, meaning the number of lines added or deleted, not exactly the content of the code changes, right? To go down that path, that would be situation kind of goes into some of the aspects of the product that we're building. But for this analysis, we didn't go down that path. So you can even take the comments that people put run it through NLP and try to infer did they add anything substantive to the discussion other than rubber stamping. So obviously there are avenues for, let's say, making it more investigative, if you'd like. But no, we stopped the analysis more on that quantitative sense and what we can infer through that quantitative analysis. Just listening to how you are explaining this, I'm thinking maybe we should add a chaos metric for number of rubber stamped code review. <laughs> project, yes. It gives a good sense of the health of the community. If all you have are rubber stamped PRs, what does that tell you about the software quality that they're building? Well, to take that one step further, number of rubber stamped comments that you had to revert or address again in some way. Yeah. And then we go beyond just analyzing individual pull requests, but really seeing the project as a whole and how the code cycle is happening. So exciting. We spent a lot of time on that research. There's a lot of data that was thrown away deliberately just because we had to stop at some point. But everything that Chris just mentioned, these are avenues that we, you know, part of them we looked at, part of them we didn't, things that weren't baked enough, we just didn't share it in a blog post. But if anyone would be interested to double click on those, we'd be happy to have that conversation. There's a TLDR to the TLDR. Yes. <laughs> While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing. Facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustain OSS on Twitter. So what are some surprising things that you learned from the analysis? So I think one of the 
things that I noticed, which I didn't kind of expect, was the kind of lopsidedness, I would say, where the 250 top repos have towards JavaScript or TypeScript together. I didn't expect that at all. I mean, I thought it would be distributed in a way that is reflective of all the kinds of things that people do software around. But there was a big bias, I think, towards the web. That seems to be one thing that, that, that stood out. But then more generally speaking to whether what kind of protection or security directions that you could have from GitHub, it wasn't clear to us which would be the way it would point out. But I think we kind of figured out that there are things that we can do, especially, let's say, using code owners that could actually help development velocity and which is kind of what got adapted as a feature in the product as well. I'm aligned exactly on that point. We started the research to figure out which features are being used for the purpose of applying security controls. And we ended up asking questions that are more related to how can that be a benefit for the developers as opposed to how can we secure the environments. And this is why we started looking into, hey, does that improve the code quality? Is it a more popular project when they have more reviews? Maybe that is the reason or maybe just the cause. We started asking a lot of interesting questions around how can security help in a different benefit that comes from different benefits. So, I mean, I was always a fan of aligning security with quality, but I just didn't expect that to be one of our conclusions, specifically with open source. Yeah, one of the things that security controls helping projects and quality, another thought that comes to mind is Something that is being discussed quite a bit is maintainer burnout and the workload that is being put on maintainers. How do you see security controls contributing to maintainer burnout or even helping manage the demands on maintainers? I don't know if there is something where you say relationship. So maintainer burnout, I think it's a bit more individual and it depends on what type of repo and how critical the repo is for other projects. But if we'll talk generally about that topic, I mean, of course, you get the Pandabot alerts, you have pull requests being opened. It's hard to test many projects. Adding test coverage means that you reduce the functionality that you have in the project. So even if you're a maintainer of a project, you're writing the code, you don't have enough tests, then you'll be reluctant on getting an updated version of the library that you're using, which requires more testing. So essentially new features become sometimes less difficult than migrating a library. And again, it depends on your on test coverage. If your test coverage is good, then, I mean, if you think about what would you prefer, do you prefer a good code review or you prefer a good testing coverage? It's hard to have both. So if you have good code reviews, awesome. It's hard to test that change, but if you have good testing coverage, then of course you can have less burden from a security standpoint, just have kind of more confidence in the changes that you do. Now, not only that, I mean, at some point we saw plenty of projects that they have a bunch of issues opened. And as a maintainer, you do want to get to the point where it's manageable. But in the moment that you start getting hundreds of issues, you kind of lost. So adding additional security controls on top of that, how much that can actually help or can be done. It's securely. Yeah, it depends on the features. It's securely overwhelming. Yes, exactly. Securely overwhelming. I like securely the overwhelming. 
<laughs> well, here's my addition to it, which is essentially just from a PR, you can't really tell what is the expected value add that piece of code is going to actually give you until you look. So essentially, as you observe, you discover how much of effort actually added value. So that is a pristine environment for automated help that the data science world can actually add to it. So which is kind of an interesting research direction that we are actually having at Arnica, which is, hey, if I have 100 PRs in front of me, varying code lengths, varying lines of code being added or deleted, can you point me towards the PRs or the subset of PRs that I should do first? And can you put away from my plate the things that really don't add much value? And can you automate that at least in some way? So that's an interesting research question that we have, which is give me things that I need to work on right now versus the things that I can quickly get to at a lull, let's say in the next day or two. So that goes into kind of understanding what the code is adding to the code base or what the PR is adding to the code base and focusing the developer effort. So I think those kinds of questions being answered will go some way into sort of reducing the maintainer burnout that you're speaking about. So yeah, that's definitely something that we're working on. Yeah. In a way, you're taking the overhead of managing PRs and keeping everything in mind and prioritizing and right. putting that into the logic of the AI that then makes recommendations so that the maintainer right. can focus on the code itself and the features and the product. That's right. The, the way that, and maybe to complement that, I mean, when you have a bunch of PRs, at the end of the day, you care about those that represent or have any potential high risk. And high risk can be security risk, of course, can be an operational risk to your environment. It can be something that just doesn't seem to belong to that repo. And if you could point those out and say, these seem to be a higher risk from whatever logic that you define what is a high risk and put your eyes on that piece of code. But at the same time, I think you're familiar with that, right? You see a pull request with four lines of code, you get 10 comments, you get a PR with 1,500 lines of code and you have a LGTM. So point here is that think about like refactoring. I just extracted the method, but that method had to be changed in multiple fonts. How do you know that this is a good PR? Yeah. So if you could get like a highlight of like, yeah, that seems to be normal. Don't worry about it. You could probably approve that easier and spend less time on that review as opposed to a high risk PR. Yeah, interesting idea. I heard from you that those are things that you're thinking about and maybe working on. In a way. <laughs> so... You were looking at the 250 top projects on GitHub. And now looking at, assume those are all pretty big and very popular projects with a certain community around it. What are some takeaways or how does that, those findings apply to smaller open source and the long tail of projects that we have? Since all of the analytics that we've built around this is not really married to scale, it bears on us to repeat it, obviously, for the long tail. The caveat there is that 
the long tails are going to have the kinds of data that you will spend a lot of time engineering your analytics to accommodate the fact that, you know, things are missing or things to just don't play very nice, but behooves us to do that. So that's obviously something I think we would want to do in the future. But if you look at, I don't exactly remember in the blog post whether some of those tables are there, but we go over projects that are in the top 250 repos, but they have between, I think, 10 and 50 PRs for a whole year. And then you have the projects have in excess of 8,000 PRs for a whole year. So the definition of small, I think you can define it in different ways. I'm not sure that we're missing some of the small projects. If you have only 50 PRs in the whole year, is that small or is that a large project? So yeah, it's a question that has to be answered again. There are no black and white answers here. We Any metric that you put on it. So I think that there is one specific rule, like when you have recursion, if you are a single contributor in your project, and it can be an open source that other open source projects depended on, then you don't have much of that value of applying code owners and things like that. Technically, no one is a contributor. They can just create PRs and you can decide whether you want to merge them or not. But the more you scale, and let's say scale can be even a small team with 10 contributors that just want to make sure that everyone reviews their friends or co-contributors pull requests, then fine, you can apply that. We see repos with five, three code owners on it, with much more contributors. So it is definitely a good control from a quality standpoint that, of course, is, plays a role in security because people can actually review those pull requests or should be forced to review those. So I don't know if I answered the question, but I mean, you can, can need to test it out according to your contributors community. Yeah, I think that's really important that you find what works for you. When we set up the chaos project, I remember we applied branch protection on the main branch and said every contribution has to go through a PR and you cannot approve your own PR. You need to have someone else, but then it we had situations where I'm the only one who can approve it. And so we rolled back some of those rules that we came up with initially just so we can continue the work. So yeah, it needs to be adapted. It needs to be adapted. And you also need to see the ecosystem around that and how much that actually contributes. So for example, when you define code owners and you have either a team or a user, the moment that a PR is opened, you get an email, you get a notification, depends how you subscribe to it. So on one hand, it can actually increase the velocity because people actually get those notifications. The other way to look at that is some devs don't really like to get a notification every change. Like think about the repo with 8,000 PRs, maybe. it will flood your inbox. And the way to do that is that specifically on GitHub, on any team that you define, you have in the settings of that team, certain configurations about code reviewers. And if you go to that page, you will see that you can select, for example, if you know who you want to review your PR, you can mention that name and then the rest of the team will not get an notification. Or you can round robin the PR reviews and then only part of the people will get those notifications. So you can go and be very smart about the configurations that you take within teams. And I think that would be very beneficial because now 
you increase the velocity and you reduce the alert fatigue, even with cutoffs. And then just building off on top of what Neo was talking about. So all of what we've talked about essentially comes to a notion of tools or features that work within a process. There's the process of building code. And so when you look at the projects that have high scale, it doesn't necessarily mean the things that worked at the medium scale or the low scale necessarily translate as well, right? There could be diminishing returns on the kind of processes that you've put in place in order to accomplish PR reviews and things like that. Again, there's the whole process side of how you deal with code and how you move that code into the hands of the customer or the consumer that is an entire area that needs to be thought of in addition to the tools that you're standing up in order to achieve better security or better. So that kind of process thinking, which is kind of well-developed in, let's say, manufacturing, the supply chain world out there needs to kind of come into the software world as well, which in terminology, it seems to have reached there, but in actual process excellence, it's really an open question still. Yeah, it's a future work. <laughs> we are coming up to the end of this episode. So if people want to follow up with you, connect with you, follow the work that you are doing, where can they get in touch with you? They can go and look up Arnica on LinkedIn or go to Arnica.io on Twitter. We also share a lot of interesting content in our blog and our website. It's uh, arnica.io. And technically, when we see open source contributors, essentially, friends, majority of it is really free. So if anyone wants to travel the project, see what's going on, even we can create Codoras automatically. So we can do that very easily for those projects that don't have it and continuously monitor that. And again, this is our premium. In addition to that, I was saying that since open source is kind of the domain from which we build up some of the products, at least on the data science side, it's kind of our mission as well in the medium term, at least to give back to the open source community. So not only through the product that I was talking about, where you can have self-service, but some of the models that we develop, we hope to enable for the open source community as well. So they can take advantage of something that we are adapting for the corporate world at large. I almost forgot something. Yeah. We also have an open source project. <laughs> so the thing is that we noticed that it's sometimes it's hard to install a GitHub app and especially GitHub app that they're not familiar with and you don't know what it's going to do with your code. With open source, it's fairly easy, but not all organizations have only open source, right? Some organizations have part open source, part private repos. So what we decided to do is develop a project that essentially generates all of the branch protection, sample code commits, pull requests, reviews, all of these configurations and misconfigurations, all of that is done automatically to any given GitHub organization. So you provided a path, you provide the GitHub organization name, and we magically create all of the dummy data in your org. The project name is GitGoat, and you can find it on gitgoat.tools or just look up GitGoat within the Arnica-EXT organization on GitHub and you will see a project. GitGoat.tools. Okay. We'll Git put it goat. in the show notes. So GitGoat is like the scapegoat where we know it has faults and we can just blame it. 
Exactly. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We always like to round off our podcasts episodes with value ads where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And I'll start us off. I have rediscovered the Firefox Focus. Firefox says it's the privacy browser. And, but for me, it's the browser where I don't see ads. And when you try to read news, a lot of the news pages have so many ads. And as I'm scrolling through a story, one ad after another breaks the reading flow where I just open it in Firefox Focus and like magic, I can finally use the news apps or news websites. So I really enjoy Firefox Focus right now. You said... Sables privacy controls? I mean, the Sables tracking or? Yeah, it does automatic tracking protection and ad blocking. It's different from typical ad blockers you can install on Chrome? Well, this one is specifically for the phone that I have. And I don't Mm. installed any add-ons on my phone's browser. So this is just a separate browser that I have. And I open it when I want to have an ad-free experience and... I don't want to log in on anything and I just want to browse the web undisturbed. Nice. For me, the way I look at things, I have the digital world and I have one foot in the analog world. So for me, one feeds off the other or one contributes to the other. So almost everything that I do outside the digital world, the analog world is what sort of like I find something of value, let's say. So I do a lot of woodworking and I thought, okay, what better way to add value to my living quarters than to finish the floors because it looks so easy on all the YouTube videos out there. And it has decent videos, all the hard work was edited out, right? Yeah, exactly. There are people out there who give you the warts and all. It's not that they hide it from you, but... It is a laborious process and you know every nook and cranny of all the flaws that you have created in your house right now. So I kind of see it and I've kind of reached towards the end of that project right now. But really, I mean, things that you learn from the analog world, especially when it comes to good measure twice, cut once, those have no purchase in the digital world or you think it doesn't, but it allows you to really think about the problems that you're trying to solve. And in that sort of like cross-pollination, I really think about the problems a lot more than rely on the fact that I can redo stuff in the digital world at low cost. That's really, I think, the biggest value add I've had over the last few years, at least. Yeah, do it right the first time. Yeah. Well, on my side, and I think Chris can relate to that, is startup life is not easy. And many times I end up waking up too early, go to sleep too late, and I don't have that much time for other things that I like to do. I can think about certain product features, try to figure out how to help the team, you know, sometimes unblock them with certain things. And my wife really helped me to kind of force myself into doing a bit more of the things that I like. So I'm a big fan of mountain biking. So as opposed to doing that maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks when it was like the most recent thing was really difficult. Find some time. Now I'm kind of trying to force myself to do it twice a week. I can tell you that when I'm done mountain biking, 
suddenly solutions pop up. <laughs> so it gives you that time to kind of clean up your mind from everything that you went through that day or things that you know that you need to do during the day. Kind of think about what is the thing that I really think to solve, or really need to solve, and how can I solve it the simplest way because I'm freaking tired. And then you end up with the best solutions. So that's my thing. Yeah. It sounds like a compliment to Chris. You let work be one and then you focus on the analog world and maybe a solution comes from something that you're doing that is unrelated. Yeah, yeah it's like a bug. You have a syntax error. You can't find that syntax error. You go for lunch, you come back and then you find it. Yeah. Same thing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate Chris and Nir for taking the time today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Yep. Yeah, the pleasure was all mine. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.